What is going on, guys? Welcome to episode number three of the Whole Nine Draft Podcast. I am your host, Josh Berg. Thank you guys so much for tuning in to the show. We've got a really long one for you guys today, so I hope you guys do sit back and enjoy it. This one could reach towards the hour mark. I've got a lot of stuff that I want to cover and go in-depth on with you guys including the upcoming Senior Bowl in Mobile, Alabama. We're going to go over some undervalued prospects that should be rising on draft boards that I may have higher than others, and we're going to rebuild the struggling Atlanta Falcons after their victory against New Orleans yesterday. It is Monday, November 11th, 2019. It is Veterans Day. As I'm recording, you guys will be hearing this on the 12th, but... If you guys have not done so already today, go ahead and thank a veteran. If you find them, thank them for their service. Without them, we would not have the freedoms that we do enjoy, like freedom of speech. I would not be able to come on here and talk about college football or the NFL draft if it wasn't for their sacrifices. So we do appreciate everything that they do. I know myself, I have lots of friends and family um, that have different military connections, so I'll be giving them all a thank you for their service for sure, and I hope you guys will be doing the same. With that being said, thank you guys so much for tuning in today. This is, um, as I said, I've said this in every episode, but I truly am grateful for this opportunity, and uh, this is going to be a good one. We're going to be talking about LSU Alabama. We're going to be talking about a lot of really in-depth prospect analysis, which I know a lot of you guys want to see and hear more about, and that's what we're going to end up doing, is going in-depth on prospects, so this is really what you guys are going to be here to listen for the NFL Draft, so I do hope you guys do enjoy it, but I've got an announcement to make, whether this is official or not, whether I get yelled at later, I'm going to go ahead and make the announcement, uh, whole nine sports will be in Mobile this year. Um, Brandon has been gracious enough to put a group of us together, and we're going to go down to Mobile, Alabama for the Senior Bowl. Um, it's This is a uh, lifelong dream of mine, dream come true. I was honored and privileged to be given the um, invitation by Brandon. He's set together a group of you know certain scouts from the website to go, and uh, we're going to be staying in a house down there. We're going to be renting out for the week, and it's, this honestly is something awesome. Whether we get credentials or not, whether we're able to go down to the media, um, I'm not sure yet. Brandon's working on that part, but I know that we will be down in Mobile um, for the weekend festivities, and I cannot thank Brandon enough for the opportunity. This is huge for me, especially as an 18-year-old kid in college, um, coming straight out of high school. This is absolutely huge for me to continue to pursue the dream that I have and I can't thank the whole nine sports family enough and Brandon for letting me uh, continue to pursue my career and my dream. So that is what I have to say about that. The Senior Bowl is always one of my favorites of the year. Obviously, you have the combine and you have the draft and so on and so forth. You have mock draft Mondays on you know Bleacher Report or whatever that you look in. We we all know the scouting process and all the stuff that we look into. But the Senior Bowl to me is the most raw out of everything because it is true one on one experience not just with the coaches and the players but the media and the players um and you do you get to see a lot of cool stuff i know i always watched the practices you know online streaming and then i watched the game but there are a lot of high profile prospects that have already accepted their invitation to the senior bowl including texas wide receivers devin duvernay and colin johnson they will both be in mobile usc receiver michael pittman jr who's one of my favorite players in the draft and then South Carolina defensive tackle Javon Kinlaw, which is one of my favorite prospects, just period, in the entire draft. He's borderline top ten for me. I'm working on my first top one hundred big board today, so that's what that's what I'm gonna be sitting down and doing. But I've got some cool stuff on the whole nine sports dot com website. You can go and check that out. I uh, recently had a prospects I love article published the other day, highlighting Joe Burrow, Javon Kinlaw. And a couple other players that I will let you guys go read for yourself. Um, In-depth analysis on them. I also obviously have Isaiah Simmons, uh, Trayvon Diggs, and Joe Burrow. Scouting reports up on the website. Derek Brown is almost finished. And then that will be sent to get put on the website as well, hopefully by the end of the week. 
So that's stuff that you can look forward to me. Follow me on Twitter at JoshBerg0611 and follow the podcast at WNDraftPod. I am very active on social media. At least I try to be as much as I can. Obviously, it's hard to prioritize Twitter um, when you have school and you still have your day job and you have the podcast and scouting too. So Twitter is the best place if you guys want to text me, DM me, tweet at me, do whatever you guys want to do. Go ahead and check out the other episodes on the podcast on Apple Music and on Spotify if you have not done so already, episode one and two. In episode one, we talked a really, we were more in depth about what the podcast was going to be about. We, it was, I mean, it was my first experience behind a mic, to be completely honest here. So in my opinion, not my best podcast, but I still will sell it and tell you guys that you should actually check it out because I think it's awesome. We talked a lot about Joe Burrow. It was the Joe Burrow show. We talked about the Houston Texans and their draft plan with no really high draft capital. And we also rebuilt the Cincinnati Bengals. If you missed last week's show, last week's show was a good one. We talked a lot about Mitchell Trubisky and uh, the draft flashback of him getting t- taken number two overall. We rebuilt the New York Jets, and I released my first top ten big boards. So go ahead and check those episodes out if you have not done so already. So let's really get into the show here, guys. Like I said, I mentioned the Senior Bowl. Um, if everything goes as planned, we will be down in Mobile in January to cover the Senior Bowl. Like I said, huge opportunity. Can't thank everyone involved for really supporting and allowing me to do and continue to do what I do. So that is going to be a lot of fun. A player that we don't know if he'll be in Mobile or not, but he took down Alabama this weekend. That's Joe Burrow. Fallout of LSU Alabama will start there because it was the high-profile matchup of the weekend. As many as 10 potential first-round prospects were on display in this game. LSU obviously having Burrow and Delpit and Christian Fulton, and then Alabama, Tua, Najee Harris, receivers Judy and Ruggs on the defensive side, and for Nate Jennings, Raekwon Davis, um, Alex Leatherwood on the offensive line, Trayvon Diggs, Xavier McKinney, a lot of high-profile names. And we're going to talk about a few of those names here in a quick fallout of the game. The number one takeaway that a lot of people have taken is obviously Joe Burrow's quarterback one. Set it in stone, he's the quarterback one. But he was always my quarterback one, at least from what I'd seen so far from him and what I've seen from other quarterbacks. He was my quarterback one. But if he was not quarterback one, if he was not your number one rated quarterback on the board, before this game, this game proved why he should and will be the first quarterback on most boards as far as internet scouts go. He completely outplayed Tua. He was accurate. He was mobile. He showed a lot of those smarts and instinctive plays that we all, at least that have watched him and have loved Joe Burrow, have seen him make in the past. And it was against one of the best defenses in football, if not the best defense in college football. So it was a huge performance from Joe Burrow. But I think the biggest takeaway from the game was the ineffectiveness that Tua has. And there is a lot of concern for me from Tua Tagovailoa at quarterback. I was never on the big Tua hype train. He's obviously going to be super high on my big board just because of the respect that a lot of other players have for him. And a lot of other scouts have seen, and I've obviously seen some flashes of being a franchise quarterback, but he looked rough on Saturday, especially in the first half. He he really struggled to get the ball downfield, and he looked uncomfortable, which is something that I haven't seen from Tua. Obviously, I have my basic concerns. Quick one-read throw. I don't like his vision downfield. I think that he needs to work through progressions, but that's really any young quarterback in a system designed off of one read. But you looked at him, he looked soft in the pocket, and you can tell his ankle is still bothering him, which has me concerned about the injuries. If they're already starting in college, what it's going to mean for him in the NFL, there are definitely some concerns there. But I thought the ineffectiveness to throw the ball downfield, especially in the first half, obviously in the second half, he hit Judy and um, he hit Ruggs and Devonta Smith. He was able to, to get them on the field. Devonta Smith, big, big game from him, definitely rising up draft boards for sure. But Tua struggled to push the ball downfield in the first half. There were a couple plays where he would uh, hit Judy and Ruggs down deep, and they would have to adjust, stop their route, make a catch. Um, 
So th- there are concerns that he can't push the ball downfield. I also thought his accuracy was really off at times, especially on the short intermediate routes. There were a couple of throws where they were thrown really low that adjustments had to be made for the receivers, which shows how good and talented these Alabama receivers are. But if Tua can't make a simple 10, 10-yard slant route and it's a little bit low, that's a little bit concerning there as well. I could be nitpicking here with him but that's my job as a scout is to nitpick and find the flaws and you watch Joe Burrow and Joe Burrow just flat out outplayed Tua he looked more comfortable he looked more poised he looked like he was a better quarterback from an arm talent perspective and from a instinctive football IQ perspective he looked ready to go Burrow reminded me my my pro comps Matt Ryan but my pro comp for Matt Ryan when Matt Ryan came out was Big Ben and I've seen a lot of Big Ben-esque traits from Burrow he's obviously um, got the frame. He's not as as big as Big Ben is, at least now. Um, but he can move around in the pocket, make plays on the run, um, whether that's throwing them or scrambling outside the pocket and getting getting um, yards upfield with his legs. He's got really he's he's got one of the most accurate footballs I have seen from a quarterback. He's able to place it in such a good spot. He reminds me a lot of Dak from that perspective. Um, if you watch the Sunday night game. Dallas, Minnesota. I know I did because I'm a Vikings fan. Dak was able to place the ball in these places where no one else could get it but his receivers. Burrow does that really well. So overall, I think just Burrow just flat out outplayed Tua. And LSU obviously outplayed Alabama. They got it to a 33-13 lead, and they just never looked back. The ending was obviously awesome. High-scoring affair. Um, And the big takeaway for Alabama has got to be Najee Harris, who is making a case for a top two, top three running back in the class. Right now, he's currently my RB5 behind Swift, Taylor, ETN, and Hubbard, but he is definitely making case to climb up those boards. The effectiveness he showed running the ball outside, catching the ball in the backfield, making plays. He looked agile. He looked fresh. He looked faster than I had seen from him in the past, and he still has that ability to get in between the tackles and make physical plays happen. LSU didn't have an answer for him. I don't exactly know the exact total yardage that he had, but it was close to over 200 um, total yards here. I'll pull it up. But he was, if you watch him, there were a couple plays where he just looked like the best player on the field. And this is a defense that had Delpit and Fulton and Chassian and all this stuff on this defense. And let's see, he had, he had 190 yards total. He had 146 rushing yards on 19 attempts at a touchdown. Then he had 44 receiving yards and another touchdown. He averaged 7.7 yards a carry which is impressive in its own feet. LSU's defense is not a bad defense. We've talked about it. They they have these playmakers, especially on the back end, that can make plays, and it didn't seem to matter. And you'd watch LSU. They were able to get pressure up the middle on Tua, but they couldn't stop. They didn't have an answer for Najee Harris, who now has six touchdowns and 788 rushing yards on the season, averaging six yards per carry. He's going to be a guy that I think, in order to get into the first-round conversation, is going to have to have a good combine. He's one of those guys that they're going to have to see the measurables on him, especially with three already borderline first-round running backs with ETN, Taylor, and Swift. It's going to be interesting to see if all of these guys can uh, climb the draft board. I personally really like Harris. I think that he showcased... A lot of things that I missed when I watched him on film, he was able to showcase the explosiveness. Um, he, he flat out played, he was the best player in this game, and that includes Joe Burr. I was, I came away more, more impressed with Harris than I did with anyone else as far as climbing and improving their draft stock. And Burrow, obviously, he had the 393 yards, three touchdowns, no interceptions, only had eight incompletions and added close to 50, or excuse me, close to 60 yards on the ground. But I already knew that Joe Burrow was capable of this stuff, so not necessarily he wasn't impressing me. It's that I I kind of expected him to do this. Harris, I did not expect to be as uh, efficient as he was in this game when he... he he was the difference maker on LSU, or excuse me, and for Bama that kept him in the game. I think is they uh, they would not have been in this game if it wasn't for him. As far as on the defensive side of the football here, the guy that I was really kind of most disappointed with was Raquan Davis, and the reason why I say that he only was able to get three tackles on the game. You know, Xavier McKinney had nineteen tackles, or, or excuse me, thirty. 
I keep reading my numbers wrong, 13 tackles in this game. And that include two and a half sacks and two tackles for loss. So he played a really vital part on the defensive side of the ball, got in the backfield, made plays. Raekwon Davis didn't do that. He had three total tackles. He had half a sack, which is obviously important. You can get in the backfield and make plays. But he's someone that's slowly sliding down the draft boards for a lot of people because the interior defensive line now is really starting to step up. Javon Kinlaw is really starting to step up and become the number two behind Derek Brown, where a lot of people expected Raekwon Davis to be the number one interior defensive lineman in the draft class. So that is my one big takeaway from the Alabama side on defense. On LSU, Kalevon Chassion, I don't even know how if I'm pronouncing his name right. I don't think I am, but he played outstanding. I believe he had 10 total tackles, 3.5 for loss. If my computer's really, really slow here. I can give you the accurate numbers. But he played really, really well. He was able to get into um, the backfield and take down Tua. He was able to force Tua to, to make plays with his legs, which we know Tua is capable of. But He's obviously, he's a quarterback, so he's better to, yeah, three and a half tackles for loss, 10 total, and he had one quarterback hurry. Um, he's slowly rising into a first-round pick. I talked about him a little bit in, um, I believe, rebuilding the Bengals as a top of a second-round player. He might not be there anymore, the way that he's been playing. Rashard Lawrence was another guy that I was really impressed with. Someone that I wasn't, and he's not in this draft class, but someone that really played poorly was Derek Stingley. Um, who we talked about a lot as a riser and a top corner prospect for the next couple years. He's a, he's a true freshman. And he looked like a true freshman out there against Judy, Ruggs, and Smith. He he did not play well at all. He didn't have a single pass defense. He had one total tackle. He clearly looked like the, like the freshman out there. And obviously, Fulton didn't play well either. He only had the one pass defense and two tackles. Delpit only had two tackles. So the entire secondary for LSU kind of took a hit. But again, they're more of guys you watch on film as opposed to numbers guys. Stingley being a freshman has got to... He's going to have to do a lot. And obviously as a freshman, you know we're still impressed with what we've seen on film. But if he wants to cement his case as one of the better corners in college football, he's going to have to play better against these top-notch teams. And he failed to do that. So those are my thoughts on LSU Alabama. Like I said, I think the, the biggest takeaway was Najee Harris fighting for running back one. He very well could be the number one running back on my board based on that performance alone. We'll have to, again, look at deeper film, and obviously Swift has been outstanding. Taylor is a big-time running back with a lot of great numbers, and ETN keeps on doing ETN-like things. Physical, powerful, explosive runner with all three of those guys. Three very different flavors of running back, Najee Harris entering the mix. It's going to be a lot of fun. Um, Moving on here, and by the way, a lot of people have been uh, texting me back and forth. My top four right now would be LSU 1, Ohio State 2. Um, oh, my God. Why, why am I blanking? Three is Clemson. It took me a minute. Who is number five? Clemson would be three, and then I would have Oregon number four, Bama, and Georgia 5-6. Um, to me, Alabama doesn't have a signature win, and that's that. their schedule is rough as far as they didn't play anyone, and they've blown everyone out, which is great. But they don't have a signature win, and resume should matter. They This was their chance. If LSU would have lost this game, LSU would have been four because they have signature wins, and their one loss would have been the best loss in football. Alabama's loss is, is a good loss. I mean, it's going to be the number one team in the country, but they don't have the signature wins to back up being a one-loss non-SEC champ in the top four, at least in my opinion. And then obviously 5-6, like I said, Bama. Georgia, um, Minnesota would be in the mix, Utah, Oklahoma. Penn State would be around that 7 to 11, 7 to 12 mark. I think the Gophers have a really good shot if they win out and win the Big Ten Championship. They're obviously going to be in the playoff, but they're, they're going to be a fun story to watch, and so is Baylor. So those are my quick thoughts on the college football playoff ranking. We'll find out the official ranking on Tuesday night. Shifting gears here. A little bit to in-depth prospect analysis. Um, we're gonna go under some, go over three prospects that I think are flying underneath the radar as far as guys that should be talked about more, as far as on draft boards and as far as in the conversation for late, mid to late round gems that aren't being talked about. But also, these guys are higher on my board than they are in a lot. 
And we're going to start with Oklahoma State running back Chuba Hubbard. What I've seen from him is he's a patient, balanced runner. He's being he's able to wait for the hole to open up and get into space, which is something a lot of running backs fail to do, especially young ones. Um, you look at the great college running backs, the ones that have maintained patient, Adrian Peterson, Ezekiel Elliott are the first two that come to my mind. Very patient, balanced runner. They're not going to force anything. They're not just going to run blind into a pile of bodies and hope they break free. They let the offensive line do their work, shift the ways they need to do, and wait for the hole to open up before they burst upfield, which is something that Hubbard does very well. He has really good lateral quickness and agility. He's able to move sideline to sideline very well and uh, make cuts. But I feel he lacks a top-notch gear. A lot of people call it a third or fourth gear. I call it a top-notch gear. His top speed doesn't blow a lot of people away. It's that he doesn't have that initial burst upfield that can transition into a a downfield run. He has a lot of these big explosive plays, mostly due to the fact that he plays in the Big 12 and there's not a lot of good defenses. But he lacks that top-notch gear. As you watch him on film, he doesn't look like this guy that can blow you away with his speed what makes him so special is his patience and his ability to be utilized in the passing game he has a lot of good passing game upside and we saw that last year um when justice hill was the running back he obviously was taken by baltimore when he was running back howard was almost exclusively used in the pass game he then has since developed into the workhouse back for them but He's averaging 6.8 yards a carry, 236 attempts for 1,604 yards. He has 16 total touchdowns on the ground, and this is what makes it even more special for me. He has zero fumbles on the year. He doesn't He doesn't lose the ball. He protects it very well. Um, he's going to be a guy that's going to be talked about in the top of the second, mid-second round. He's going to be in that mix for running back 3-8-ish, to 3-7. to seven. He's currently my number four, um, but Harris probably just passed him. Um, based on last weekend. Like I said, a couple things that really could, I don't want to say concern me, but are flaws in Hubbard's game. He obviously, like I mentioned, he lacks that top-notch gear. He's not able to get upfield quick. He's more of a patient, balanced runner. He wins um, at the point of attack and able to get into space because of his ability to see. His vision is one of the best in the game. He's able to, um, like I said, agility. He's able to move his body and move into cuts to get into space and find the ability to get into space. And once he gets into space, then he's able to make plays. But he can't straight just outburn you. He He's more of a distinctive, agile, elusive back. And then I also don't think he has a true nastiness. As I mentioned, he's more of a... I've mentioned this a lot of times. He's a patient runner. He needs the hole. He can't force holes to open up with his physicality of play. He has a hard time lowering his body to power through contact. He, like I said, he needs to be given a, I don't want to say sizable hole, but a decent amount of room to get upfield with him. I don't exactly have an accurate pro comp for him right now. He kind of reminds me of Shady, but I have to do more in-depth analysis on him. Honestly, the pr- the protection would not be Shady as all. Well. I mean, Shady fumbles the ball a lot, but as far as a, a runner, Shady is where I'm going, leaning towards, but again, I have to get into full depth scouting report on him but i think hubbard could be a top of the second round guy people will see the production in college as far as the yards per carry and touchdown standpoint and be able to change their blocking scheme to fit what he needs to succeed and he's gonna again he's gonna have to be a guy that has has a good combine he's gonna have to have a good 40 time to prove us wrong about lacking the top-notch gear and then he's gonna have to have a good bench press to show that he can be physical and and have that strength that we think he's lacking. So that's someone that I think is someone that should be talked about more as far as an NFL draft guy. He's obviously being talked about a lot as far as his numbers in college football being one of the better running backs. But I think as an NFL draft prospect, he's someone that should be rising on boards. And I think that as we get further into the process, we'll see that for sure. Going from a not-so-physical player to a very physical player, we talked a little bit about him in the LSU-Alabama fallout, but Anthony Jennings is someone that came into the season as you know a first-to-mid-round second um, player. He's an edge-slash-linebacker. I don't exactly know what he's going to classify in in the NFL because I think that he's got a good hybrid in him. 
He's a big, powerful player, 6'3", 258. I think he's going to fit more as a 3-4 outside linebacker than he is as a true edge rusher. Um, he has great instinctive hand usage. He's not someone that's going to be getting you a lot of sacks and a lot of tackles for loss. He's more of a hard edge tackler. And what I mean by that is he's able to wait for the play to develop as far as he's able to snuff out where the play's going, and he's able to just get around the edge into the backfield to make your tackles at or a little bit ahead of the line of scrimmage as opposed to being someone that's going to at the point of attack get there to stop the quarterback behind the line of scrimmage he's more of a hard edge he seals that that uh i believe he's on the right side he seals that right side off of the defensive line and is able to push to make tackles um because he's such a big powerful player he limits he has limited range and agility, but he's not going to be someone that you're going to put in coverage. He's going to be a, a essentially a two-down situational linebacker that you would put in to stop the run on run plays, and you would have designed to make plays in the middle of the field. Um, as I said, the, the lack of range and agility is something that, again, he can prove at the combine i just on film it doesn't he doesn't jump off as a athletic rangy backer he's more of a hard-nosed powerful three four edge back that would be used in pass pass rush situational and then um, to stop the run he's not going to be someone that you're going to want to put in coverage on a tight end because he will get beat he's not he doesn't have the speed or um, coverage skills to do so He's a very powerful and physical player. I just think he's a lot of fun to watch. I like players with nastiness in them, and Jennings has that. He's got great hand usage to gain leverage on the uh, point of attack. And like I said, the the hard edge tackling makes him a unique player because a lot of these players nowadays, and especially pass rushers, want to get sacks, want to get into the quarterback, want to get the numbers. Anthony Jennings is just smart and makes the right play a lot of times. Um... He reminds me kind of like Anthony Barr. Um, Anthony Barr obviously is more fluid, more fast. So he, that again, the the uh, comp's not set in stone here. We'll know once I get in depth. Based off the few things I've seen, Jennings, physical, powerful player. Like I mean, it's six three two two eighty five. So he's a big guy. Use I think more as a situational three four outside linebacker would be where I would push personally place him. Um, and he would be in there mostly on first and second down to limit the run. But he's a guy that has kind of fallen on draft boards, kind of down to a third round draft choice. I would personally, I wouldn't mind taking a flyer on him in a second. He really played well against LSU, not from a statistic standpoint, but from a you you of player evaluation. He made a lot of plays that really jumped off the page. So I think that he's going to be someone that scouts are going to have to dig more into, and he's flying under the radar after personally. Um, preseason, he was a first-round talent. He's kind of fallen off because of a lot of other linebackers that played well. Um, and he's now going to be a guy that's going to be taken close to the mid to late second round. I would, I think that he could be in the top of the second, mid-second round as opposed to being a third-round player. At least in my opinion, I think he should be someone that should be given a little bit more attention than what he is, Durbin, especially on a national scale. The third player I want to talk about is one of my favorites in the draft, and I wanted to talk about him and the prospects I love, but I hadn't really gotten in depth. I've been watching, I think, like a couple plays and liked the range of this guy, but then I went back in in depth and looked at him, and he's definitely one of my favorite players in the draft, and that's Troy Dye, a linebacker from Oregon, and we'll talk about him in the Atlanta Falcons segment. He reminds me a lot of someone that's very similar to that that they have on their team. Um, Troy Dye is an athletic, rangy linebacker, really good tackler, but what I like about him is his coverage upside. You match him one-on-one against a tight end, he's very good in man. He has allowed only three pass defenses all season, which isn't isn't great for a linebacker or for a player as, as a whole, but as a linebacker who's mostly in man-to-man coverage against a tight end, having three pass defenses is very key. And through seven games, um, I looked at pro football focus. Through seven games, he only allowed 80 receiving yards against him. So that's about 12 receiving yards per game against him one-on-one, which is incredibly um, impressive to me as a linebacker. You know, when you're, especially in the professional level, when you are a quarterback, you see this tight end linebacker matchup, and you want to exploit that matchup because your tight end should be bigger, stronger, faster, faster. 
and have better hands than this linebacker, it should be a mismatch. Troy Dye is an athletic, rangy player, and he's able to keep up and have really good coverage against tight ends and slower receivers. He matches up very well. I think he's someone that should be talked about again, second, third round. He's mostly been going. He's I've seen him as low as like linebacker number seven or eight, which I just think is just ludicrous. He's probably going to end up being my third or fourth linebacker behind Simmons and Moses for sure. And then we'll kind of look at that middle tier if I consider Jennings more of an edge or more of a linebacker then he'd probably be ahead of him but that is going to be a top four top five play for me at linebacker I just I think he's something I don't want to say special but he's just something so gifted from an athletic standpoint that the upside and production upside for him is just so strong that he is someone that should be getting more national attention we'll see how he does against Utah when he when Oregon and Utah go head to head because Oregon should be in the national spotlight as far as a um, college football playoff team. I would like I said I would personally have him at number four. We would assume that Oregon and Utah will be playing each other in the Pac-12 championship game. So he's played really well. I would like to see him continue. Obviously, they're going to have a um, a pretty easy schedule, I would say, the rest of the way. I think it's Arizona, Arizona State, and Oregon State. All one of the games for Oregon. They should be 11-1 and heading into the uh, Pac-12 championship game, which I would assume they would be taking on Utah unless Utah stumbles pretty badly. I'll pull up the standings here to make sure I'm not just talking out of my ass. Um, but the day to destiny, Pac-12 championship, Oregon, Utah. That should be the uh, matchup. Let's pull it up here to make sure. Yeah, so Utah... If they win out and Oregon wins out, that's your Pac-12 championship game. Um, USC, obviously, with only one more loss, they're five and two in the conference. Utah's five and one. So if Utah stumbles their last two games, two three games of the season, then that matchup would change, obviously. But I really like Oregon and I like Troy Dye a lot as well. So before we get into the whole nine rebuilds the Atlanta Falcons, and I've got a lot to say about the Atlanta Falcons because I have a lot of respect for a lot of the talent on this team. I want to take a minute to talk about what happened in the NCAA this past weekend. They made national headlines about what transpired here, and this segment's going to be quite long because I have a lot to say. I'm very passionate about this topic, Um, and it's not necessarily draft-related, but I feel like it's something that, as a guy who covers college uh, sports and pro sports it has a lot of implications on it so as we all know recently the ncaa passed legislation to allow players to profit off their name and likeness in doing that ncaa football will be able to return to consoles around the country however Even with this legislation, the NCAA is still taking advantage of their athletes. This was evident not once but twice this weekend with two high-profile college athletes. It started with Chase Young, who was suspended indefinitely for taking a loan from a family friend he took, I believe, his freshman year. The NCAA garnered that as receiving benefits and they suspended him indefinitely. Chase Young obviously posted on Instagram and Twitter and apologized and issued a statement, you know, hey, I'm sorry, you know, I knew what I did was wrong, blah, 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 blah. You know, I hope to be back on the field sooner rather than later. As I've got the full statement here in front of me. Um, He took out... A loan in 2018, so it was last year. It was, this, it was uh, last season. He took out a vo- um, a value loan that had monetary value from a family friend that he paid back. Um, that he that he paid back to that friend after it was given. The NCAA considered him receiving a loan of monetary value or profiting off of his name, receiving benefits that college athletes are not allowed to receive benefits for. Chase Young was suspended. He missed the game this past Saturday. 
Ohio State didn't need him as they destroyed. I believe they played Maryland 7-3 to 14. Um, so he obviously was not needed on the field. And maybe this is good for Chase Young. Um, I was listening to a couple different podcasts this past weekend that were talking about it. And they said it might be good for him because then he can't get hurt. Which, you know, hey, that's it's a very... Uh, if he is off the field, he's just what you have on film is what you have on film to evaluate, and that is the number one player in the draft. No injuries, no other concerns. He'll be fine to go. And I don't think this impacts the draft stock at all, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But the NCAA, even after passing this legislation, is still corrupt. They're still in this for their money. They're not in it for the athletes. They're not in it for the collegiate students. They're in it for themselves. Um, and that goes back to college basketball and their transfer portal having to waive a year of eligibility to play right away that goes to what happened with chase young and james wiseman this weekend and it just shows the ncaa does not have a clue and does not care about what their athletes and the benefits they have a lot of these athletes a lot of these players are coming from a very rough and very poor upbringing that's just that's just how it is you you can watch any e60 on espn you can watch any documentary dissecting the personal lives of these players a lot of them come from close to nothing whether it's a single mother raising four kids you know working four jobs and you know sharing two bedrooms for 10 children you know whatever it is whatever backstory it is cassius winston lost his little brother this weekend so a lot of these players have backstories that are of poverty, of suffering, and of loss. So when a kid like Chase Young needs a loan from a family friend to help support himself, I don't know what the loan was used for, whether it was to buy buy a car or you know whatever it was. I don't know what it was for, whether it was to pay tuition for books or whatever. I would assume he'd be on full scholarship at Ohio State anyway. But whatever this was used for, Unless it was used for something illegal or something against NCAA rules, Chase Young should not be penalized. And the NCAA doesn't know what it was used on. That hasn't been, and if they do, it hasn't been released to the public yet. We don't know what Chase Young used this loan for. But what we do know is a family friend offered him money for whatever Chase Young needed the money for, offered it, and then he paid it back. It's not something that he was paying people to sign autographs or getting paid to sign autographs or he was in an endorsement deal or he was profiting off of his play in the field, which now obviously would be legal in the coming years. He wasn't doing anything illegal. He simply took a loan from a family friend and he paid it back. I do that all the time. I mean, hey, I, uh, I need money for gas. Can you toss me a 20? I'll give it back next paycheck done there you go it's it's not that difficult hey Liz, i can't make you know hey lunch um you pay for lunch i'll pay you back and i'll buy it next time that's it's just common courtesy among friends it's what happens all the time me and my buddy evan we go out all the time we split the check or you know i'll cover one time then he'll cover the next time and then we'll pay each other back whatever it is it happens all the time so the fact that the ncaa is penalizing a player for doing what pretty much everyone does on an everyday basis is just ludicrous and it is hypocritical that the ncaa even if it was making money off of his likeness or his name or he was getting paid to do something it's hypocritical that the ncaa can make all this money and the students and athletes get none of it they get nothing whether i think that college athletes should be paid on salary per game or based on production or whatever it is i don't know i just know that the athletes should be able to have benefits to them playing the game. It's just plain and simple for me. If these coaches get to make millions of dollars and hop around wherever they feel like it, and the NCAA can profit off of these superstars, where would the NCAA be without guys like Saquon Barkley and Chase Young? Where would they be without Tim Tebow? You know, with all Johnny Manziel, that profit, the NCAA profits off all these high-profile, high-character um, athletes. Manziel was huge in... When he played at Texas A&M, he was a big moneymaker for the NCAA. Chase Young's the best player in the NFL draft, best probably the best player in college football. And the NCAA is making profit off him. And why can't these players have the same benefit? 
it was very frustrating to see this in the news. And I'm not someone that likes to get super aggressive when he talks. I see him maintaining a monotone tone, but I'm very frustrated with the NCAA. As a fan of the product, as a fan of the NFL draft, as a fan of the entire process from freshman year on National Signing Day to your senior year when you declare for the draft, I'm a fan of the entire prospect, the entire process of the college athlete. So seeing that the NCAA manipulates and the NCAA really um, profits and does not protect or care about their collegiate athletes is very frustrating. And it is something that something needs to change. It and the you know the new bargaining agreement that allows athletes to get paid off their likeness that's coming hopefully next year is a step in the right direction. But it this just shows that even if that was passed, there are still significant flaws in the NCAA and their logic behind a lot of things that are that have happened. I mean that that's just to say the least. And this wasn't even the only incident. But Chase Young was not the only incident that happened in the NCAA. He was not the only high-profile athlete to be punished by the NCAA based off of actions that had happened in previous years. And I'm not in no way, shape, or form a basketball podcaster. I don't want to talk about basketball on my football show. But I'm a big, avid basketball fan, too. I'm a fan of all sports, all of it. So I'm a big college basketball fan and basketball fan as well. And this ties into what I have to say about the NCAA, so we're going to sit down and talk about it. James Wiseman, the number one overall player in the recruiting class for Memphis Center, was suspended indefinitely by the NCAA for, listen to this, for being helped by head coach Penny Hardaway, it, by being helped to get moved into a new house. That was That's what he was suspended for. The reason being, Penn Hardaway is considered a booster for the Memphis Tigers basketball team. So he is receiving help and benefits from the booster of the program. Now, I don't know about any of you guys, if you guys played sports. I was basketball manager um, for my high school for two years. I had a great relationship with the coach. And... If whatever it was, the head coaches and the assistant coaches were always there for their players. Whether it was I needed a ride home from practice, whether it was I needed a ride to practice, or I needed help with something, you know, outside of school, my coaches were there. And I don't expect anything less for the collegiate coaches. James Wiseman and his mother needed help moving into their new house. Penny Hardaway offered that help. Memphis is is a electric place, but it's not always a safe place, right? I don't know James Wiseman's backstory, um, but again, it could be could have been one where the only thing that he had in his entire life up until college was his family and his basketball, the, his ability to play basketball, and the NCAA suspended him, or is going to suspend him based on you know waiting on further investigation. I guess is going to suspend him based on receiving benefits from a booster. Absolutely pathetic. You know, Penny Hardaway was doing his job as the head coach of the team to support his player, to support someone that he helped bring to the university. And the NCAA is punishing him for it. Punishing the kid for asking his head coach to help him move. It's Whether this happened before or after um, his commitment to Memphis, I'm not sure the timeline. If it was before his commitment to Memphis... Then to me, Penny Hardaway just being a nice guy, right? It's it's nothing major. If it was after his commitment to Memphis, then he's just being that kid's head coach. He's just being James Wiseman's head coach. He is helping his student and his athlete in a time of need. It is not that big of a deal. I know that if you or I needed help, and we asked you know a coach or a mentor or a friend or whatever to come help us, they would come help us. Again, it's a simple it's a simple thing that happens in everyday life. And James Wiseman is getting penalized for it. So the NCAA, my my uh, closing statement to you guys is simple. Fix your shit. <laughs> it's, it's, it's plain as simple that your process that you guys are going through, the laws that you guys have abided by, and that you have in place for your athletes clearly is one-sided and delusional. And the fact that you guys think that you guys are supporting and benefiting your athletes is, complete, is completely wrong, um, to say the least. 
I'm so happy that you guys finally got it through your thick skulls to pass legislation that players will be able to um, receive benefits and get paid off their likeness in names, whether that's through advertisements, video games, etc., etc. But that does not mean that you guys can punish athletes for doing things that are way less harmful to your product. The reason the NCAA is in such turmoil right now is not because of the athletes, it's because of the NCAA's process. So if the NCAA wants to fix their product, wants to fix the entire national media disgracing them for their treatment of their athletes, then you guys need to fix your problem. You guys need to go back to the drawing board and completely look at every single rule and regulation that you have and decide whether it's worth it or not. Because most of them are not. The fact that Chase Young and James Wiseman are being penalized for receiving a loan from a family friend and being helped moved by his head coach is absolutely ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. They are two simple factors, the things that happen in everyday life for everybody else. Whether it's receiving a loan from a friend to go out to lunch or whether it's being helped by a friend to move into your new house. It does not matter. These athletes should not be restricted because they are under the NCAA label. These are human beings, these are athletes, they are people that are putting their body, their time, their um, their future in your hands. So you guys need to do whatever you guys can to support these athletes and to make sure that they are receiving proper and fair treatment. And it might not have been a big deal if these weren't two high-profile athletes, but I think the NCAA is simply just trying to make an example out of these two. Chase Young, number one overall pick in the draft, assuming number one overall player in the draft, top three pick, guaranteed. Let's make an example out of him. James Wiseman, number one recruit coming in, number one prospect for the 2020 or 2021 draft class, whatever he chooses to go in. Let's make an example out of him. That's the NCAA's point. Their point here, at least based on what I believe, was just because we pass this legislation does not mean players have the freedom that they think they have. That's, that's, that's I think, the bottom line for the NCAA. And I can go on and on to talk about this stuff. I'm very passionate about what I have to say here. The players should be able to receive benefits and get some sort of beneficiaries for what they do on the field or on the court or on the pitch, whatever they are. They deserve to receive beneficiaries and be treated as equally as everyone else. And they are not. So the NCAA need to fix their their process that they go through this stuff. It, it's just clear as day. It Something needs to happen. I'm going to leave it at that. Let me know what you guys think. I'll be more than happy to discuss it on Twitter with everyone. Once again, at JoshBerg0611 or at WNDraftPod. Whatever you guys prefer. If you want to tweet at the show or at me personally, you guys can do that. But I had to get something out here mostly because... This could impact Chase Young's draft stock. It could. Whether it will, I highly doubt it. I highly doubt it because the play in the field and the, everything that we've read and heard and talked to about Chase Young, high-profile, high-character act. He's going to be a, a really good player in the NFL. Same thing with James Wiseman. High-character, high-profile, really good player in the NBA. But the fact that the NCAA is punishing these players for something that's absolutely... It's it's stupid. That's That's all I have to say about it. It's stupid. So moving on here, I hope you guys enjoyed that. If you guys want more segments like that, I'll be more than happy to include a monthly rant or whatever as a segment on the show. I'll be more than happy to do that. But we're going to get into the main segment here. If you guys are Atlanta Falcons fans, buckle up. This one's going to be a good one. We're going to be rebuilding the Dirty Birds down in Atlanta. Who Atlanta, top to bottom, probably has a top five, top seven roster in the NFL. Matt Ryan's a really good quarterback. You've got two good backs in Devonta uh, Freeman and Ito Smith. Julio Jones and uh, Calvin Ridley, one of the best wide receiver duels in the league. Austin Hooper is emerging as a top tight end in the league. Alex Mack, one of the better centers. Deion Jones, one of the better middle linebackers. Keanu Neal, you, I mean, you guys get the point. Keanu Neal, Desmond Trufant, doesn't matter. They've got a really good roster. But it can't all come together for whatever reason. Ever since that Super Bowl hangover, when they blew a 28-3 lead against the New England Patriots, they have not been the same team. I'm going to fix it. I'm going to help you guys right here on the Whole Nine Draft Podcast. Thank you guys for tuning in. This is your main event of the episode. So the first thing I would do is I would trade or release Vic Beasley, um, which breaks my heart because I was a big Vic, Be- Vic Beasley fan coming out of college, and I was a big Vic Beasley fan two years ago when he had his monster year. I think it was like 15 and a half or 16 and a half sacks, whatever it was when he led the league in sacks. But his production is completely tailored off since that big season. And the defense 
is shifting and changing their scheme based on his needs and traits when you should be looking for players that fix that fit the, the uh, needs and traits of your scheme. Vic Beasley is more of an undersized 3-4 outside linebacker. He needs to be standing up to get to the quarterback. He's not very good in coverage. He's more of a first and second down pass rusher. He's he's not anything special when it comes to stopping the run. He's not a very good tackler. He's simply a pass rush upside guy. And he doesn't fit the scheme in Atlanta. So he needs to be traded or released, whether it's for mid-round value or you get rid of him and you create a new roster spot. He needs to find a new home. He needs to have a fresh start. And Atlanta Falcons need to continue to rebuild that defense that has got, like I mentioned, some really good playmakers on it. Grady Jarrett, Deion Jones, Keanu Neal. You've got a really good player at all three levels, similar to the Jets. What they had, Quinn and Williams, C.J. Mosley, Jamal Adams. Um, you've now, you have that in Atlanta. Grady Jarrett, Deion Jones, and Keanu Neal. You've got a playmaker at all three levels. You need to get another elite defensive player in the first round. Um, Atlanta's going to be looking at probably a top 10 pick. Uh, they beat New Orleans, so they're obviously going to hurt their chances at Chase Young. But you've got a lot of elite defensive talent in this draft class. Um, some needs for them. You need a, another number one corner on the team. You could be looking at Akuda at pick 6 or 7. Or if they continue to win games, finish 5-11, and 6-10, and 10, finish around 10-11-12. Uh, Christian Fulton would be an option there. You need a coverage linebacker, which I'll talk about you know, in, in a little bit. Isaiah Simmons would be a great fit here in Atlanta. Him and Deion Jones lining up at linebacker, I think, would be fantastic. Or you can go replace a Vic Beasley, get a true pass rusher on the edge in AJ Epinenza. Or, again, if you're lucky enough to have Chase Young, you need to just get something. Something that can be an elite defensive presence on the roster. The names I have listed here are Akuda, Chase Young, AJ Epinenza, Isaiah Simmons, Christian Fulton. Those are the names that Atlanta should be looking at. And I think they will, obviously, because with their picking, their biggest need in, in a tier offensive line is not exactly going to be great value in the top 10. And there are really good values in the second and third rounds or trading up like they did this past year, trading up to the back end of round one, I think could be something that they're in play for. So obviously my next my next thing, find more pieces on the offensive line. They've committed to... Rebuilding off the line. They drafted Chris Lindstrom and Caleb McGarry in the first round last year, both of which I thought were reaches, especially with the talent that was on the board. Um, but they were their offensive linemen, their bodies on offensive line. And obviously, Chris Lindstrom's injury this season hurt the development of putting this offensive line together, and obviously, um, it has hurt the quarterback play of Matt Ryan and Matt Schaub, and it's hurt the run game. It's just hurt the entire flow of the offense because you didn't have that plug-and-play guard in the interior that you thought you did in Lindstrom. So Alex Max having to, to do a lot more at center, and he's obviously older. So the offensive line's an issue for this team. A couple names I have listed here are Tyler Biazdez. Um, he's going to be a mid-to-late first-rounder. And Creed Humphrey, who on my board's a early second-round player, but he could obviously be a mid to um, late first rounder as well, depending on the need. Offensive linemen are always elevated in the draft because of the premium need that it is, the premium position that it is on offensive line. So those are a couple names that they can be addressed in the early rounds of the draft. I want to talk about the late rounds of the draft, and this is what you guys wanted to hear. You wanted to hear more in-depth prospects. You wanted me here to talk about prospects. Well, the one of the needs that I mentioned for Atlanta, it's a coverage linebacker. Who did I talk about earlier in the show that's undervalued and should be talked about more? Troy Dye, linebacker out of Oregon. Him fitting would be perfect on this Atlanta Falcons team. As I mentioned, he reminds me a lot of Devondre Campbell. Coverage, athletic, rangy, linebacker, really good tackling skills. Campbell has simply just fallen off production-wise. You insert Troy Dye. Campbell, I believe, is a free agent at the end of the year. I'm not 100% sure, but I think he is. Don't quote me on it. I would look it up, but I'm too comfortable in my chair, if I'm being completely honest with you. Um, but Troy, I could be a plug-and-play guy. You can play at either outside linebacker positions, or you could play him at the middle linebacker position if you want to change schemes. Atlanta's got to figure out what personnel they have and what fits their scheme. If they take Troy Dye and they want to convert him to a middle linebacker, you're going to be looking at a 3-4 guy, and you're going to want two big guys at the end, on defensive end, which means you could be looking at A.J. Epineza as opposed to a Chase Young. If they go to a 4-3... Um, and they have another defensive tackle next to Jared, you could be looking at Derek Brown in the first round. It all depends on what they do, and obviously that will um, depend on what they do with Dan Quinn, which we'll talk about in a little bit. 
Um, this entire defense needs an entire makeover. I think Troy Dye is just an athletic playmaker that would fit pretty much in every team. But not only does Atlanta, not only does Troy Dye fit Atlanta, but Atlanta needs a athletic coverage linebacker. Troy Dye, what is he? An athletic coverage linebacker. Atlanta could use a uh, middle round pick on Dye if they so chose to. So the last really segment here for the secondary, and this is this is I absolutely love the secondary this year's class. I love it. There are four or five guys I absolutely love, and then there are a couple late round guys, late mid late round guys that I think should be talked about. So if the Atlanta Falcons go a different direction and they don't take Jeffrey Akuda in the first round, if they don't take Akuda or Fulton, they need to get some secondary help, especially at corner. I like the safeties that you have on this team. Keanu Neal is one of the better safeties in the league when healthy. Obviously, his uh, health has been a kind of a if for most of the year and most of his tenure, especially the last two years. Um, when he got hurt last year, it absolutely killed them. But he is someone that is a difference maker on the back end. But you look at, uh, I also really like Ricardo Allen. I think that he's a good player as well. So you look at corner, Desmond True fans aging. Isaiah Oliver is finally coming into his own. Um, But he's still, is he an elite number one? No. And Demonte Casey, they have listed on their depth chart as a corner. He's going to be more of a floating box safety. I really like him as well. But they lack that true number one elite corner. So if they fail to get Akuda or Fulton, I've got two names here that can develop, not necessarily as a number one, but as a Trey Wayne type of playmaker, as a Trey Wayne type of role. Where if you have a lower tier cornerback one like Atlanta would have in True Fant or Oliver, whatever one they choose to go with at cornerback one, you can rely on that second guy. The first guy is Bryce Hall, who is going to be a top five corner for me. Um, obviously, right now, Akuda and Diggs and Adebo and Henderson and Fulton are ahead of him. But Henderson and Adebo have been shaky for me on film at times. So you can see Bryce Hall up there. I absolutely love what Bryce Hall brings. I think he can be a difference maker on the back end. And he's versatile. Um, he can be used... In the slot, if needed, I think Oliver, because he's so long and lengthy, he would be your designated outside corner. So I would put Bryce Hall, 6'1", 200 pounds. In the slot, he's really smart and has good footwork. Um, and he's really good against these bigger receivers. Um, he's got good that have good bursts, and he can handle them, especially in space. Um, with that being said, Hall would be more of a designated zone coverage guy because of his ability to use his range um, to make plays. And he is one of the better run-supporting tacklers in the uh, in the entire draft. So there's just a couple guys that I think can make a difference, and Bryce Hall is one of them. The other one, Sean Wade, who no one really talks about that much as a corner, um, I don't know why he's a guy that I mentioned could be a late one, early two kind of players. Um, and he's he, he's a slot corner. It's what he's done at Ohio State. He he is more of a press zone guy, which, again, I think would fit what Atlanta should do. They should transition to and focus more on a zone scheme that would allow die if they draft die or Campbell if they keep Campbell, your coverage linebacker in space, and you would allow your two outside corners to rotate the the um, perimeter, you would allow your slot corner to convey the middle, and they would have help over the top with the safeties and your coverage linebackers out wide. I just think that that would be, um, I just think that would be a lot smarter, especially with the personnel that Atlanta has. And with the players in this draft, a lot of them are zone press cover, uh, coverage corners. Sean Wade is one of the better ones in the uh, in the draft. He's a very big tone setting corner. I mean, He's 6'1", 194, so he's got the length that you need to be a corner. And he's also really good at tackling, which again, in space and zone schemes, you're going to need a good tackler. So not only do you have a good slot corner in Wade that can be both reliable in the press and in zone, you now have someone that can tackle really well, so you can put him in run supports if needed. And you have a guy that can be rangy. Um, He hasn't played a whole lot. Um, and he's not 
really when you watch him, he's like I said, he's mostly used in the slot, so he's not someone that's going to be given um, a lot of looks on the outside. And I think it's because most of the, most of the attention's on Akuda on one side that um, no one's talking about Wade. But he's someone that doesn't have a lot of boundary experience, but that's not what Atlanta would need. As, as I mentioned, Trufant and Oliver can be your outside exterior long-rangey corners. You can have a guy like Wade or Hall in the underneath zone in the slot. I just think that that would be a lot smart for Atlanta. You just need bodies at this point, talent, upside, athletic, rangy ability that are smart. And that's what Bryce Hall and Sean Wade both represent fairly well. Um, the next bullet point I have on here is consider firing Dan Quinn. And it's... It's evident he is underachieving with this roster. Um, ever since they made it to the Super Bowl, um, they have fallen off a cliff pretty badly. He, The one thing that's in his favor is he is a locker room favorite. Matt Ryan, Julio, Deion Jones, they all have come out of support of Dan Quinn, and they want him to stay. Whether that has any implications to the front office to keep him, I'm not sure. I know for sure there are at least two head coach firings that are happening. That's Adam Gase with the Jets and Freddie Kitchens with the Browns. If I had to bet on a third one, it would be Dan Quinn in Atlanta. Would I fire him? Yes. I think that his time is gone. His defense, his defensive mind has steadily decreased um, in the past couple years with that amount of talent that is unacceptable. Um, so I would let him go. The reason why he would stay would be because he's a locker room guy and the locker room would fight to keep him. The last bit on here for the draft is I am a big proponent of drafting a quarterback every single year. I always have been. Um, and the reason for that is you never know when injuries are going to happen, and you never know what type of late-round picks are going to perform well. Russell Wilson was a third-round pick. Dak Prescott was a fourth-round pick. Um, you know, yes, you have the, the guys that were first-round picks like Darnold and Lamar Jackson and uh, Aaron Rodgers and Big Ben. But you have these late-round guys that are playing real well. Kyle Allen was undrafted. So... I'm a big proponent of drafting a quarterback every year. And you look at the Atlanta Falcons quarterback room, it's Matt Ryan and Matt Schaub. What what do those two have in common other than their first name? They're older, aging veterans on the team. They need to find a young quarterback to develop and at least have as a backup plan to Matt Ryan. Um, I like KJ Costello's fit in Atlanta. I just really do. Um, smart, Smart passer. I just really think that KJ Costello would be a good fit here. Another name is Steven Montez. But really, any of these late-round quarterbacks would fit really well in Atlanta. Um, Jordan Love's a name that's been floating around. I do not like Jordan Love at all. Never have. Um, So he's not someone that I would be looking at. But Nate Stanley, KJ Costello, Steven Montez, those kinds of names could be looked at for Atlanta. And it's not going to cost you much. All those names I just listed are going to be drafted on day three. Um, KJ Costello might be the exception. He might be a late round third, but I'm not even sure if he's that anymore. Um, so you're looking at a day three pick on a quarterback that could develop into something. And it's just taking a chance. Like I said, big proponent of drafting a quarterback. Every single year you have the opportunity to. That is something that Atlanta should do. They've got two older quarterbacks on their team. It's time to look at seriously. Matt Ryan's one of my favorite quarterbacks in the league. One of my favorite from a production and a play standpoint. That's why I love Joe Burrow so much. I, I love the similarities between the two. They need to look at drafting a quarterback to at least have a young backup in case Matt Ryan goes down again. You can be like, hey, let's throw the young guy in the fire, see what we got. I'm a big proponent of that. I'm a big fan of just drafting and developing a quarterback every year. Um, teams that have done that really well, the New England Patriots. <laughs> You look at their last quarterbacks they have drafted um, since Ryan Mallett. We're not going to count Ryan Mallett. He was the outlier. Jimmy Garoppolo, he's now a starter in San Francisco. Jacoby Brissett is now a starter in Indianapolis. You now have Jarrett Stidham, who I liked coming out of college a lot. He obviously, you know, on his only drive as a New England Patriot, he threw the, the pick in week one. But he's someone that the Patriots have consistently drafted a quarterback. Um, if not every year, at least every two years, they've drafted one, maybe two quarterbacks. Um... I think that a lot of teams should follow that same model in Atlanta, especially now, needs to draft a quarterback at least to have on the back burner in case things go even more south than they already are. That is today's episode, guys. I hope you guys did enjoy it. It was a longer one. I had a lot of fun going in-depth and talking about this. If you guys like the longer episodes, let me know. Give me a five-star review. Give me a comment, and I will be more than happy to have these longer, drawn-out episodes. I really took time and effort into this one. Um... The first two was kind of the feeler to see what, what I like to talk about, what are the, the segments that I like, what I don't like, and then I really got in 
in depth. As as I get more into the process of scouting and the NFL draft is closer, like I said, I'm working on my first 100 big board. So we're getting close here. And then on top of me getting further in the process, me getting a better feel for behind, sitting behind the microphone and talking to you guys for an hour or so, and on top of the Senior Bowl news, I was very excited. I just wanted to get this podcast to be the best one. I think that um, it was a really good one. I did enjoy it. I hope you guys did too. Once again, follow me on Twitter at JoshBerg0611 or follow the show at WNDraftPod. Send me your questions. Send me your DMs. Tweet at me. I'm more than happy to have any conversations with you guys about the NFL Draft. I hope you guys enjoy the rest of your day. and I hope you guys enjoyed the show, and I will see you guys next week. Until next time, I will be signing off.